It's a summer's day, and Ed Jackson is relaxing by a friend's swimming pool. I walked down, literally just took my T-shirt off. There were loads of people in the pool. Something so routine, he was almost on autopilot. Dived into a pool a million times. Like, I used to be a swimmer, used to love going tombstone, cliff jumping, all that sort of stuff. And so he walks up to the edge and jumps. It felt like it just went sort of whack, whack. He'd hit his head on the bottom of the pool. I was trying to get my head above water, and if anyone's sort of been dunked in a pool before, when you're kids, you know, there's that sort of panic moment. Suddenly, he realises he can't move. And then I just sort of sunk back, staring at the surface. I remember thinking, I hope someone's seen this, because I could drown here. I'm Rob Pope, and from Red Bull, this is how to be superhuman. In this episode, we speak to Ed Jackson, ex-professional rugby player, mountaineer, charity ambassador and paraplegic. In 2017, Ed's life was turned upside down. A terrible accident led to him lying in a hospital bed, unable to move. It was only after plucking up the courage to try and move his limbs and failing that it dawned on him he might never walk again. Less than a year later, he was standing on top of Snowdon, one of the UK's highest mountains, as an ambassador for Wings for Life. He now supports a charity dedicated to finding a cure for spinal cord injuries and wants to help improve the lives of those less fortunate than him. Ed had been playing top-level club rugby for the best part of a decade. But one day, in a match for the Dragons, a chain of events gets set in motion that would change his life forever. It was quite innocuous, actually. I was chasing the ball back into our own dead ball area. They kicked it through. I slid. I went to slide down. It was a wet day on the ball, and my shoulder just got jarred behind me. Felt it pop. And, uh, yeah, needed another op, and that, that was me going to be laid up till the following season. But it wasn't the end of the world. You know, I, I played a good half of the season, and the timings of it worked out that I'd have a r- good run into, into next year and a full summer to sort of get back on top of things. So I was kind of looking forward to, uh, to an early holiday, really. In hindsight, he might have been careful what he wished for. I went back to Bath for the weekend because the boys were playing away from home and um, because I was injured, I didn't need to be involved. And we went round to our family friend's house for a barbecue. Really nice sunny day, just finished lunch. They had a swimming pool, like a feature pool. It had a rock fall in one side, a waterfall slide at the other end. I walked down, literally just took my T-shirt off. There were loads of people in the pool. Dived into a pool a million times. Like I used to be a swimmer, used to love going cliff jumping, all that sort of stuff. Very comfortable around water. Just walked up to the edge of the pool and dived in where the waterfall hit the water. Dived in at a steep angle, I think. In hindsight, subconsciously, I probably thought that, you know, uh, waterfall hitting water. Deep end, end. Mm. Um, Also, because of the ripples, I couldn't see the bottom of the pool. Thought it was at least six feet deep. Turned out it was only three feet deep. So very quickly my head hit the bottom of the pool. And suddenly struggling around, 
under the surface. It all happened very quickly and it's weird because I can remember it all quite quite clearly. I think there was a lot of adrenaline involved because I was underwater. I didn't think I'd done anything serious. I thought, OK, I've cut my head open. I didn't lose consciousness. I was a bit dizzy. I thought, I'll stand up, see if I'm bleeding in their pool. I better get out so I don't put a load of blood in their pool. And that's when I realised that when I went to try to stand up, that's when I realised um, something was wrong um, because I couldn't really move. And now he starts to panic, to lose control. And then I just sort of sunk back, staring at the surface. I remember thinking, I hope someone's seen this because I'm gonna, I could drown here. Fortunately, my dad was in the pool and one of my mates as well was actually not too far away on a lilo. They came straight over and I could see out the corner of my eye them one of my mates sort of wading over. My dad and my mate pulled me up above the water and I was just like, there's something wrong, I can't move, I can't move. And my dad is a retired GP, so he straight away... I mean, there was blood coming out of my head, so, so that I was right. But at the same time, that wasn't the problem. You know, that's not the thing he was worried about. He held me still... Um, on the side of the pool they floated me there and uh, the little movement I had in sort of my right leg a little bit of movement in my shoulders soon sort of drifted away and 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 that was it I was you know just shoulders down effectively paralyzed how did they get you out of the pool it's so important with spinal injuries isn't it to keep people immobile yeah so I mean at the time you'd be surprised looking at me now but I was about 18 stone you know I'm probably half the size now than I was and so the they they called an ambulance. The air ambulance was out at a road traffic accident, so we had to wait for a normal ambulance. Um, they turned up with the spinal board, the paramedics. Luckily, my dad was there, his mate who owns the house, and my mate, because without those three, we wouldn't have been able to get me out of the pool. So they just held me, held me in the pool. They floated the spinal board underneath, strapped me to it, and then all six of them carried me out and... Uh, yeah, over to the ambulance. Yeah, do you remember the journey? Like, were you speaking to anyone? What happened? Yeah, so the journey to the journey to hospital, I thought took about fifteen minutes. I remember speaking to the paramedics and, and the doctors and chatting away, and they were talking to me and you know trying to keep me keep me talking. Basically, they were like, just stay awake, and I felt fine. I just felt a bit tired. What I thought took about fifteen minutes. I've since found out it took my dad a year to tell me that actually. Um, it took two and a half hours for me to get from the pool to the hospital because they had to pull over and resuscitate me three times. Obviously, that that puts a different spin on the on how lucky I've I've I realise I am. But mm. um, at the time, you know, I just felt a bit dozy, felt fine, thought I was chatting away, thought I'd sort of dozed in and out a couple of times. But fifteen minutes later, I was there, and there were doctors around me and 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 my dad and stuff. But actually, I'd. Um, been given th- shots of adrenaline t- to keep me alive at, at that point because we've all heard the phrase you know sort of seconds or inches away from death but you know literally and we'll come back to this you know unit of measurement later on but you were millimeters from death yeah so the scan revealed that the impact on the top of my head was so hard that the disc between c6 and c7 vertebrae which are the two at the bottom of your neck which kind of they don't rotate much, but they, they're the ones you use to look down and look up, um, had exploded um, and the two vertebrae had dislocated. So they were out of line. So the scan showed that straight away. And, and the problem was one of the bits of disc had exploded and cut through half of my spinal cord. So you got 12 millimetres of spinal cord. I've got four and a half left. 
I mean, even that's bad enough, but, you know, any less you're looking at um, total paralysis. But the pro- it's not total paralysis. You know, if you cut your spinal cord in half at that point, you're going to die. So, because your body goes into shock. So, yeah, millimetres, millimetres away. So you're used to having operations, but this was a little bit a little bit bigger. And they see that you've got a life-threatening injury. They're going to have to stabilise your neck, you know. So what did you think? Did you know anything before the operation, what was going to happen? So after the scan, they then rushed me to Southmead, which is a big hospital in Bristol. I dived into the pool about 5.30. It was then about 11 o'clock at night, which actually is an incredibly quick turnaround to end up going into surgery. Another reason, that's another sort of reason why, why I was lucky. I appreciate how serious it was, though. You know, they pulled out the stops there by the look of it. You know? Yeah, they, they called in one of their top spinal surgeons. Luckily, one of their top spinal surgeons, Mr. Brewer, he had just got back from two weeks on holiday, so he was having to be on call over the weekend, which normally he wouldn't have been. Um, so he had to come in at 11 o'clock at night. I remember him leaning over me, and you can tell it's serious. You know, I've been into surgery a few times, and you've got the surgeon and then the anaesthetist, and that's it. I was like, there's 10 people around the bed. Everyone's panicking. The stops are being pulled out. You can tell there's red lights flashing. There's doors opening. That's when the reality hit home for me, I think, that, okay, this is this is serious. Because up until that point, I don't know if I was in shock or denial or, or what it was. I was just like, look, let's get the operation done. We'll move on from there. Be fine. I'll, I'll be all right. And then, you know, he leant over me before we went into surgery and he said, um, he said, look, Ed, there's a chance that this won't work. So you'll still be exactly the same when you wake up. There's a chance it will work. You know, you'll, you'll make some sort of recovery. And there's also a chance you won't wake up, given the seriousness of the um, operation that we're about to undertake, but also the anaesthetic. Um, and apparently, I can't really remember this. I remember saying something to him. Apparently, he told me later that I just said, don't worry, Doc, just give it your best shot. <laughs> Which is, he said, was the most bizarre thing he'd ever been told in given the circumstances. But fortunately, he did give it his best shot. And seven hours, seven hours later, the operation through a microscope using robotics to pull bits of bone out of my spinal cord. You know, I, I was still, I was still alive. I owe that man a huge, huge amount. When I woke up, I remember thinking. Um, why I was there. I was in A&E. I could tell it was pretty serious, but I've woken up after surgery before. My family weren't in there at the time. There was just a couple of intensive care nurses. And then I remember what had happened and why I was there and the words that that Mr. Brewer had said to me before I went under and thinking, okay, cool. If he's fixed this, it'll be fine. I'll just try and move now. This nightmare will be over. I'll be back to rugby and, you know, by the end of next season, I'll just see out the rest of this injury and I'll be all right. But then he tried to move his left foot. Nothing happened. Right foot, nothing happened. Hands, arms, nothing. I was just like head on a pillow and shit. This uh, this nightmare is 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 a reality. I'm I'm that bloke that I've spent my whole life hearing about. But you know now now it's actually me. How does that feel? to one day go from being a fit and healthy rugby player to the next facing a future without being able to walk. I mean, I don't know when it sank in properly, but that I remember those, those initial moments was just uh, was just sort of fear. How important were your family to you at this point? Like, How were they 
you know, reacting and, you know, were they were they encouraging? Were they, you know, struck dumb? Because you could imagine that could be, you know, what do you say? I mean, obviously my family have been unbelievable. I'm very blessed with, a, with an incredible family and support network. My dad was, was a very key part of this early stage because he understood every process that was going on. Um, obviously it wasn't easy for him that it was happening to his son, but he's a stoic Yorkshireman. You know, he, he doesn't ever show, an, show emotion it's it's literally taken me having to break my neck to get any sort of emotion out of it. So, but but for for my wife and and my mum and you know um, the rest of the family, he's there saying, explaining it all, translating all the doctor language. Mm-hmm. Um, when when the surgeon's coming in and saying that there's a chance Ed won't make it through this operation, he's then turning around when my wife and mum are going to bits, saying, "Don't worry, he has to say that." You know, he he was way more important for the rest of my family than than he was for me at that stage, I suppose. During the day, when 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 my family were there, they're obviously put, all putting on a brave face. Some of them are better at, better at it than others. You know, I'm lying in bed. I've got tubes in my going up my nose, in my neck. I've got I can't move. I'm, it's, it looks pretty dramatic. I felt a responsibility to not panic them as well. Um, so I was almost putting a show on for them. So I already felt guilty for what had happened. You know, I, I didn't want to put, I never wanted to put my wife and my mum and my dad and my friends through something like that. So when they were in there, I was trying to laugh and smile. And, and, and that process actually really helped me because by pretending I was fine, I actually did make me feel fine. But then it's intensive care. People have to leave at eight o'clock at night. You're there by yourself with your own thoughts, lying in bed, staring at the ceiling. I couldn't cough because I didn't have any power around my rib cage or anything. So it, them having to come in and use a suction tube down my throat to clear any saliva you know that that was not very nice because obviously that sensation of drowning kept coming back and then them having to roll you from side to side all the time to relieve a pressure sores um the alarms kept going off because my heart rate was um sitting at about 42 beats per minute or something because of you know being an athlete like you'll know about that but you know and every time i fell asleep it would drop below 40 and there was no override function. So the alarms would go off. So it turned out being like sleep torture as well. And it was just, you can't go to the toilet for yourself. So you've got, you know, I'm, I won't go into any gory details, but people are doing that for you as well. And, and it's just, it was hard to get my head around, you know, especially as a proud, you know, proud young man who'd been a sportsman, always felt like independent. And all of a sudden, everything had been taken away from me. You know, fit, being physical and being fit was kind of, my identity I suppose and and that was the one thing that was sort of ripped from underneath me and I was just sort of a head on a pillow and and the process with dealing with that and trying to trying to stay positive and fight back those negative thoughts was um was something I had to try and get to grips with and and because it became it became imperative to like how how and if and why I would make a recovery I it was going to be led from from the head down but staying positive when something like that's happened is is understandably pretty difficult because all along you you know you always had that inkling that you know you were going to fight it and you were going to make it but then the doctors come along and assess you a few days later and maybe it's not going to be all so great <laughs> yeah well I mean I think after two three four days of no movement no sensation people are thinking certain things but no one wants to say it um, and then it was after five days, the surgeon came round with the doctor and with some of the nurses on the morning ward round. And they'd been doing this something called the Asia test, which is the American Spinal Injury Assessment. It's just a standard test for people who have suffered a spinal cord injury. It's basically a bunch of pinpricks, sensation tests, movement tests. And I was still category Asia A1 after four days, which is showing us a complete spinal cord injury. And 
they were worried that I hadn't come to terms with what was going on, that I hadn't let it sink in because I actually asked to, after two days for them to wheel a TV in so I could watch the boys playing rugby that weekend. Um, so I think they were a bit worried and I think they wanted to give me a dose of reality, if you like. And they came in and said, look, Ed, these are the facts. This is your, these are your results. Um, you are most likely never going to walk again but hopefully we can get some movement back in your arms um, so that you might be able to use a wheelchair. A wheelchair. The thing that had been in the back of Ed's mind the whole time was now out there in the open. And I remember looking at my mum and my wife and just seeing their face drop because we'd been thinking it, but no one had sort of said it to that point. And um, I remember looking at them and thinking... Okay, this isn't about me. It was the independence thing. I was like, I can't put them through this for the rest of their life. I'll be fine with me being in a wheelchair as long as I can look after myself. As long as I don't have to drag anyone through this with me, I feel guilty enough as it is. God, it's unbelievable you felt like that. I I think I'd be a right selfish one if I was doing that. (laughs) But people people say that, but you you never know. I would have said the same thing about myself, I think. And I remember thinking, right, I've got to get better for them. I've got to try and become independent. And so he develops this mindset. And at first, he aims small. Try and get you smiles back so that I can use a wheelchair. And if someone had given me that then and there, I would have bitten their hand off. For Ed, this was all about mindset. In fact, at first, he was basically trying to think his way back to being able to move his body. Every waking hour, I was just staring at body parts and just willing them to move and imagining them moving and just trying to sort of... But how do you even go about that? Because, like, you know, I if I want to move my arm, I just move my arm. If I say to myself, move your left arm, it doesn't happen. Like, so is it... I don't know. Like, Do you feel like you're trying some telepathy trick or something? It's, it's bizarre. And, like, because you, you've been able to move everything your whole life, if you close your eyes and imagine you're moving it, it almost feels like you're moving it. Because I had no sensation, so I would imagine moving it. It's when you're staring at it and it's not moving. And that's all I could do because I couldn't move anything. So the only place to start is imagining it moving, visualisation and hours and hours of that. And it's amazing how tiring it is just trying trying to wiggle something for an hour. You know, I was doing that flat out and I technically hadn't moved at all. You know, and then I'd pass out exhausted for an hour. It's a neurological fatigue. It's, yeah, it's I like, bet if they did a brain scan at that point, it'd show like a firework display. Up yeah, there, I think you know? it, firework display mm. and then a cutoff point. You know, where trickles are sort of trying to get through. Um, but that was all. That's all we had to work with. And so he keeps going like this, thinking willing something to happen and it's frustrating and it's tiring just imagine what it's like to think as hard as you can for hours and hours on end but then after seven days I saw my uh, my toe flicked did you think it was real? No, not at the time. I yeah. thought my initial thought was it's a spasm because I was having spasms. Like that's one of the effects of spinal cord injury, and uh, I thought it was just another one of those. <laughs> I did it again and again. I couldn't really feel it, but I could see it, and it was when I was telling it to move for the first time. I remember just being like, "Mum, get in here! I need an independent toe adjudicator." Yeah, <laughs> like, is that moving? I think I'm moving it. 
it must have been better than their seeing your very first steps, you know, because you expect them, but this wasn't expected. It's hands down the most, it's the biggest moment of um, of my life, like mm. the big, the, in terms of the emotion for all of us, because it wasn't just my arms or hands moving. It was a, it was a point in my body that meant that that I was told was that was never going to happen. So as soon as that happened, everything else they had told me. I also chucked out the window. It's amazing how your boundaries move, you know, before it takes winning a championship, for example, to, to make you feel like that and not even feel that good. And now it's just wiggling your toe. You know, you, you, your parameters have, have shifted quite a lot, but it was a, it was a pretty big day and um, I can remember it vividly. That wasn't the end, though. Ed had only moved one toe and he knew there was still a long road to travel. It trickled through and there were bad days and good days and I quickly learnt that my mind was leading my body. If I was negative that day, if I was thinking negatively, if I was worried too much about where I was going to end up, if I was ever going to walk again or thinking about what I could have done differently on the day, then I would be distracting myself from what I could do right here and now to improve. So by necessity, I learned to stay present. Like I ditched all of the stuff from before. I was like, well, you can't change that. There's no point worrying about it. And I didn't worry too far ahead of where I'd end up so that every day I was doing whatever I could to improve. And the goals came into play massively then. You know, before I just wanted to use my arms to be able to get back, work it. But then I changed the goalposts to daily, you know, right, I'm going to try and get my third finger moving today. Because if I achieved that, it felt like I'd succeeded. Whereas if I woke up every morning and was like, I'm going to walk again, I would always be failing and it would feel like I'm fighting a losing battle. So I'd just move those goalposts shorter term and and bit by bit, we chipped away at it and those small goals turned into uh, big, big results. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Especially, I love the bit you said about the mind leading the body because it's often through adversity where we really find out what we're capable of, you know. And so do you think sort of that is the key to us becoming superhuman in whatever field you know so did you feel at that point you were doing something special is it something everybody could do no I felt like I was just doing what needed to be done <laughs> you look back and people and people go oh god I couldn't have done that you know doing every waking hour like eight hours ten hours you know just repetitiveness but it's it was necessary you know it wasn't just me trying to get fit for another game or another tournament you know I would have I've slacked off in the past if that's the only reason I was getting better it was the difference between me walking again and not so as soon as that that's there I was focusing on that why why I was doing it then it became easy to put that effort in soon he was ready to take on a bigger goal actually it was a much bigger goal nine months in I was still using a wheelchair but I'd been I'd been walking a bit you know I had double crutches and foot splints and I'd walked up to sort of four or five hundred meters and I remember saying to my physios that I want to we need to set a goal, we need to set a challenge. You know, I'd had all these goals in hospital and now I'd done nine months of solid physio. I needed something to challenge myself. I said I wanted to climb Snowden and my physio said, uh, are you drunk? And I said, no, I'm going to do it and you can come with me if you want. And obviously at that point I hadn't really walked very far at all so climbing Snowden was pretty ambitious but it gave me that goal to aim towards. I announced it publicly. I said I'd started a blog in hospital and I said to everyone, if you know, want to come and get involved, then feel free. Ended up being picked up because of the sporting background being picked up, like BBC Sport and all this little stuff. So I piled the pressure on myself to achieve it then. 
but having that goal there meant that I just drove really hard for three months and um, I opened it up to anyone who wants to join in, turned around on the start line expecting a few people to be there and there were 70 people there that I didn't even know. So we just had this most amazing weekend in, in the mountains, climbing Mount Snowden. It took me nine hours to get to the to the top everyone thought I was mad they still think I'm mad um, hobbling around in the mountains they're like what's he doing out here but I got there and I remember getting to the top and um, first thing that happened was get all these hip flasks and glasses of champagne thrust in front of me and I haven't drunk for like a year so I drank a couple of things and I was like I better stop there and then I realised I'm pissed (laughs) I turned around at the top I managed to stay on my feet the whole way there and I turned round at the trig point at the top and fell flat on my face. For people who don't know, Snowden's like the highest mountain in the whole of Wales. And you might not remember the huge amount on the way down. But can you describe to me just what those steps felt like? Yeah, brutal. Mm. Really tough. But do you know what? I, was, I enjoyed it. I was used to getting my endorphins from physical exercise. Mm. And one of the hardest things for me was not being able to move enough to actually get myself out of breath for so long. Because there was snow on the ground. I've seen you doing this. You were in like sort of a T-shirt as well, you know, and so it was was obvious that you weren't just going for the stroll. No, I had, um, I mean, my, it takes a lot more energy for for me to move around. Mm -hmm. And I also, the neurological issues, there's a lot of other stuff that you don't see. Um, And one of them is temperature regulation. So I don't sweat from the chest down. It means that I run really hot all the time. When I'm walking, I'm probably expending as much energy as someone who is running because I move very inefficiently mechanically. So I'm hot all the time. So it was a bit bizarre seeing the snow and everyone wrapped up in coats and hats and me there in my T-shirt. But actually, it's quite beneficial now that I'm doing stuff in colder places that I run hot all the time. What did that summit mean to you? Well, it's meant quite a lot because that was it. I've been hooked by the mountains ever since and... It's not necessarily just the mountains, it's achieving something and doing it with other people. And it, it felt like a culmination of, of a year of hard work, really. And um, it was, it's still, I still pinch myself every time I'm in a situation like that because I look around and I'm like, I, I genuinely shouldn't be here. And I think of everyone that I was climbing for, you know, all the people that had helped me along the way. It wasn't just me succeeding and getting to the top. It was all of us. My physios were there, my family. They, they played as big, if not a bigger part, in me standing on top of Snowden as, as, as I did personally. So, um, yeah, it, it felt amazing. It felt like that team victory again. You know, It felt like winning the championship with London Welsh. You, know, you don't just do it for yourself. You do it for everyone around you. And um, it's something that, again, yeah, I'll never forget. You're following the traditional route of the alpinist, you know, sort of get, get, get your low-level kicks in the UK, then to the Alps, but we all know where the grail is, and that lies in Nepal. Yeah, well, um, one of my friend's dads works for a charity called Neverest Orthopaedics, and they were building a spinal unit over there as their next project, and he asked if I wanted to be involved with some of the fundraising. What I didn't anticipate was the fact that I'd get back on my feet to the point that I'd actually be able to go to Nepal. So I went out there at the end of 2018. I hadn't been long out of a wheelchair and just completely fell in love with the country and the people. So I got addicted, I got obsessed with the whole place. I, I had one of those typical moments, you know, the gap year, like you stand in the Himalayas and you find yourself and your purpose. I, that genuinely happened to me. Everyone would be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but genuinely looking at Mount Annapurna with my wife, I was like, right, we need to commit our lives now to trying to help people through the mountains. So 
on the flight back, um, we came up with millimeters to mountains, which sort of signifies my journey from small movements to to, to now climbing mountains. And um, but also anyone's journey from coming through anything, you know, start small but sort of dream big. Because I realised actually being in the mountains, it was great being there raising money for other charities, but actually the real benefit was being there. I was seeing, looking around, seeing you know people who had come and joined us on the climbs, um, and seeing the benefits they were getting emotionally from it. But my own dream of keep going higher and the fact that I then stood in the pool and seen these 8,000 meter beasts in the background that as you said the sportsman in me was like right I need to go and stand on one on top of one of them now and uh, that's what we did a year later talk us through that expedition well, I expected four or five people to come the plan was to go out to Kathmandu and then go and try and climb Mira, a mountain called Mira Peak which is six and a half thousand meters 21,000 feet highest sort of trekking peak in Nepal I thought four or five people might come. Ended up being 14. Um, a couple of my uh, my physios I've been working with who've been part of my journey the whole way, which was amazing. It was an 18-day climb. It took a week to walk to the bottom of the mountain. That's how isolated it was. Um, we were having 12, 13-hour days. Summit day was minus 25 when we woke up at 2 a.m. and pushed for the summit. Four of us didn't make it to the top. Um, fortunately, I was all right. I knew mentally I could do it. I knew I just wouldn't stop. But was my body going to give up first? Mm. Um, and it was close, not because of the altitude, just because of the physical output. I was monitoring all of my my heart rate and distance and stuff. And I was averaging like 11, 12,000 calories a day um, just because my heart rate was what averaging 140 150 beats per minute over 12 hours because of just how inefficiently i move that's double my calorie pb (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you run efficiently like you know um the fascinating thing is well the the stupid thing is is taking me having to become disabled for me to go and try these things yeah um but also doing it with other people and seeing the difference it makes to them that's even more rewarding than the benefits i get you know there are people on that trip one guy who came out of the army with PTSD seven years ago um, and to his own admission had become a bit of a recluse and, you know, really struggling with mental health. His dad actually got in contact with me to, to um, for him to come on the trip. And and for the first few days, I'm not going to lie, we were a bit, I was a bit worried. You know, he's exactly the type of person I want to come on the trips because I know how much it can help. But I was like, God, he's, you know, he's on edge. He's got some demons. And I remember waking up one morning and he was outside and I was first on up. We were sort of five days into the trek and he was just look really shaken up and pale. And I was like, what's, what's going on, mate? And he, and he said, um, he said, oh, I had some really bad nightmares last night. And I said, I'm oh, sorry to hear that. He's like, no, it's great. It's the first time I've dreamt in seven years because I haven't been able to sleep long enough. So bit by bit, day by day, he was dumping all of this emotional baggage and he was sleeping better. And by the end of the trip, we have this award called the Golden Crampon for the person who, who has... I don't know, adds the most value. There's no set criteria to it. It's not the best climber. It's just, mm. for some reason, it becomes obvious by the end of the trip who this person is. And it was him. And he completely come out of his shell. And to watch them go through that process and to see like how he is now just makes the whole trip worthwhile in itself. Um, so that's why I want to carry on doing it. And that's why through the foundation, we want to take groups of people away like James who've got these things going on in their lives or maybe at a crossroads and want to work something out. And it's this appetite for helping people that led Ed to the charity Wings for Life. Wings for Life World Run is a race run each year. The proceeds help fund research into spinal cord injuries and paraplegia. I'm an ambassador for Wings for Life. A lot of people 
don't have hope. They've had complete spinal cord injuries. They're not seeing any improvement. The only hope they've got is in medical breakthroughs. Just the knowing that someone like Wings for Life is there because they fund that cutting-edge research keeps them going, keeps them alive, stops them from giving up. So I really, I really enjoy working with them and we're going to uh, walk the spine of England and we're going to encourage as many people to come as possible. I'm in. You're in. I'm in. Perfect. <laughs> so you can't go at your usual pace. Fair play. Um, but talk about Wings for Life, though. I've, had my, you know, I've known about it for a while because I've always had my eye on the, the run, the, the world run that they do. But it's a bit different um, to your average run, though, isn't it? It's not just the, the gun goes and you get into a finish line. It's literally exploring your own limits, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So the, the whole point of it is for everyone. You know, it's so a car basically starts at the back and it's a pace car and you go as far as you can until the pace car catches you. So the winner is the last person to be caught, which would be someone like you or you know a <laughs> professional runner. Um, but, you know, everyone from the start, myself, wheelchair users, give it a good go. And whenever you get caught, however far that is, um, you know, that, that's when you pull out and you raise as much money as you can along the way for, for this amazing cause. And, and that's going to be the same thing for, for, we're calling it Walk the Spine, little Johnny Cash uh, <laughs> take on it. But um, the same thing, you know, it's going to be accessible for anyone. People can come and join in for an hour, for a day, for the whole thing if they want, which is going to be, you know, two weeks. Um, because it's about these challenges being accessible there's going to be areas that there's going to be sections of it which are wheelchair accessible as well um, and that's the same with the world run as well you know getting outdoors and and challenging yourself and testing yourself you know that it's we're trying to encourage more people to do that just because you've got physical mental disabilities whatever it might be doesn't mean you have to stay inside and you have to go within yourself putting yourself out there testing your limits pushing your boundaries is hugely beneficial for anyone so hopefully we can inspire some more people to do that What an incredible guy. Ed's continuing his work for Wings for Life right now. It's a not-for-profit foundation with the single aim to find a cure for spinal cord injury. Such an important mission that Ed is the living embodiment of and he's not done with Snowden. His next goal is to become the first paraplegic to summit Everest. Watch this space. Coming up next week, it's the amazing Yusra Mardini, the swimmer who saved a boat full of her fellow refugees before making it to Rio and the start line of the 2016 Olympics. I just was thinking that that I just want to get on the island and, and I, I don't want anyone to die. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast. And also get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag Red Bull How to Be Superhuman to share tales of your own superhuman feats. Or you can even suggest other people we should talk to with incredible stories. We'd love to hear from you. How to Be Superhuman is a something else production for Red Bull Media House. Red Bull.